This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is sponsored by ExploreBrevard.com. Picture yourself in the middle of 100,000 acres of public lands and over 300 shreddable miles of single track. A place often referred to as one of the top mountain biking towns in the country, Brevard, North Carolina has countless epic adventures for every kind of rider on tap. Whether you love rocky, rooty, technical lines in Pisgah, or flowy lines in DuPont State Recreational Forest, or something in between, Brevard has it all in spades. Come discover the place often referred to as the cycling capital of the South. Start planning your trip today at explorebrevard.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is David Billstrom. David is the CEO of Kitspo, a North Carolina-based cycling apparel company known for producing high-quality products. The company utilizes a made-to-order model for many of the items in their catalog to reduce waste, cut lead times, and support the local economy. Thanks for joining us, David. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into the cycling apparel business? Well, anyone who knows me might be shocked to hear that I'm in the apparel business. My (laughs) wife's happy if I remember to wear pants instead of shorts when I leave the house. So um, uh, I'm I'm not a clothes horse, but I am um, a business person. I've been a capitalist, my sisters tell me, since I was about nine years old. Um, and we were trying to play Monopoly. But um, uh, I got into the business because the opportunity to disrupt the industry had become apparent. Hmm. And I can say more about that in a moment. But... Um, I've worked with the founder, Xander Nosler, uh, in a previous company in Seattle. Mm-hmm. We both lived in Seattle. And so when he called me up and explained the Kitspo concept of premium, durable clothes that looked good on and off the bike, mm-hmm. I was definitely intrigued because I knew there was nothing in that category. Yeah. But over the years, that grew into an opportunity to actually manufacture the clothes differently. Mm-hmm. Um, what a lot of people don't understand is that all of the brands of clothing in the United States, the vast majority, 98% to be precise, are made somewhere else outside of the United States. Hmm. Wow. So the opportunity to, to have a made-in-USA, let alone a made-in-USA lean manufacturing model for any kind of product, was intriguing. Hmm. And yeah. that's really what drew me to the CEO role at Kitspo is, is making a difference with yeah. the manufacturing. Yeah. What year was that that you and your partner sort of identified this opportunity? So Xander was the first. I barely knew what lean manufacturing meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and about six years ago, he explained it to me. I said, wow, you mean clothes aren't made that way? <laughs> I mean, what you and everyone should understand is that virtually everything you buy at the consumer level is made in a lean way. So hmm. everything from your iPhone to the furniture at Ikea, um, at your grocery store, in fact, stocks the inventory using a lean methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where some of the basic concepts of lean manufacturing came from was the grocery store environment. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a metaphor. It's a literal example. No grocery store has a storeroom in the back anymore. So all of their inventory is on the shelves, and it's restocked every night. And so the lean 
manufacturing model is how do you make stuff every day rather than making it in bulk and volume, putting it in storage, and then managing the movement of all that inventory from storage to its ultimate destination. Hmm. Yeah. And I think most Americans got a lesson in this, maybe, maybe in the entire globe during the pandemic, and you heard about the problem with supply chains. Well, mm-hmm. supply chain wasn't a word, a phrase really, until lean manufacturing. And it's the idea that you are getting the raw material just before you need it when, when you're in the manufacturing cycle. Mm-hmm. And then you're shipping it, knowing exactly who's going to buy it and when. Yeah. So it's a, it's a 50 or 60-year-old concept, mm-hmm. but it's never been applied to close. <laughs> so that's what was really exciting to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, presumably, though, if we go back, you know, say 100 years or 200 years ago, I mean, isn't that essentially how clothes were made? I mean, somebody, maybe they had a little bit of fabric sitting around, but they would only make a shirt if they knew someone was going to buy it, right? Oh, that's a really great point. So we've gone through an evolution, and this is true of many of the consumer items we use today, where if you go back 200 years ago, um, if you had clothes, you made them at home. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the Industrial Revolution introduced the idea of bulk manufacturing with machine aids. And uh, that's where much of the abuse of labor really um, accelerated. Hmm. The machine was more important than the human uh, doing the human part of the assembly. Okay. So, you know, my grandparents would have made their clothes at home and maybe have some store-bought clothes. Mm-hmm. that were made in a factory. Okay. And then that evolved to the degree that today almost no one knows how to make their own clothes and everything <laughs> is quote store bought. Right. Unquote. Yeah. And so for the iPhone and for all of our other consumer goods, the most efficient way from a business point of view to make it is using the lean manufacturing. But unfortunately, because we have countries um, that have affordable labor forces those that that change hasn't occurred or is occurring very slowly. Hmm. So in places like Bangladesh and India and places like Vietnam and China, the labor force is still viewed the way uh, the, the labor force was treated at the turn of the century in the industrial age. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Vietnam last year, the average wage for a highly skilled sewer and have some of the highest quality in the world in Vietnam is $2.10 an hour. Wow. So if you're only paying $2.10 an hour, and that's in 2019, 10 years before that, I'm guessing it was $2 a day, mm-hmm. then you don't have much incentive to make the process efficient. You'll just mm-hmm. use humans. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we've gone through that whole cycle where we used to make them at home, then it moved into the factory, and for many things, it's moved to an efficient factory, but not with apparel. Apparel's still being made by disadvantaged workforces in sometimes horrific conditions um, in other countries. Yeah. Well, I imagine, too, that apparel is a tough one and maybe one of the remaining industries where there is a lot of human labor involved. I mean, I understand maybe you can do some of the cutting, you can make that sort of more automated, but... At the end of the day, someone is still like sitting in a machine kind of sewing these things together. There aren't robots or just like assembly lines where they can just put shirts out, right? 
It's true. There's a, a very human touch in the sense that it's difficult to automate certain part of the procedures. You, you can automate some things, um, and I think you're going to see, since the cost of robots have come down and there's even completely different ways to make things, like using 3D printers, mm-hmm. um, there is some 3D printing, quote-unquote, of clothes that's hmm. really at the experimentation phase. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that human touch is still not only necessary, but in those other countries, it's affordable. Okay. Yeah. Well, you've kind of given us a, a flavor of what lean manufacturing is about, sort of in a general sense. How does it work specifically for an apparel company like Kitspo? So we do things um, a little bit different. And one of the first things I want to say is when Xander, the founder, did the experiment, he was... Um, he did that with just two or three people doing the work Mm -hmm. and uh, a very small percentage, initially maybe five or 10% of our revenue. And then Mm -hmm. over a three, three year period that grew to about 15% of our revenue. Okay. When we moved to North Carolina, we could make the full investment and the full commitment. In fact, we haven't purchased any more apparel overseas um, since that change. The only thing we buy overseas now is socks and gloves. Hmm. We make everything or we have partners in the United States that make everything. Okay. So that transition was relatively abrupt because of the cash flow, which I'll explain uh, separately in a moment. Mm-hmm. And um, so the way it manifests for us is that we use a, um, a machine cutter instead of cutting by hand. Mm-hmm. And that is faster, but more importantly, it's more accurate. Okay. And... Then we are sewing it together with skilled artisans, and they are doing that at stand-up sewing machines. Hmm. So if you Google uh, cut and sew apparel, or even just apparel factory, Mm -hmm. all of your images will show lines of sewing machines with people sitting. Right. And conceptually what's happening is at sewing machine number one, That Asian woman, because they are almost always Asian or East Asian, and they're Mm -hmm. almost always female, is sewing 300 left sleeves. Wow. And the the person sitting at the machine um, next to her is sewing 300 right sleeves and so forth. Wow. So instead, um, we are making clothes the same way your automobile is made or your iPhone, which is one at a time. Mm -hmm. In that sense... We have stand-up sewing machines instead of sitting, and the sewer is going to go to sewing machine number one and do that left sleeve, and then they're going to pick up the work and move Mm -hmm. to the right to the next sewing machine, which is idle until they arrive, Mm -hmm. and it's also standing, and then they're going to make that right sleeve. Then they're going to pick up the work and move to the third sewing machine, and so on and so forth. Uh, To make our famous icon shirt, we have about 40 machines. Whoa. And they're shaped in a U, and each machine is configured to do what it needs to do to honor the time of the labor. Mm. Okay. So in a lean manufacturing environment, and this has been true for the last 50 years since Toyota introduced the concept, the most valuable commodity in the factory is the human. So mm. it's upside down from that industrial age assembly line where the least valuable item in the building was the human. Mm-hmm. It's the other way around. Hmm. And that same person is going to take that work from machine to machine. And at the 40th machine, 
then they will do their final inspection and log in the finished shirt and go back to the start and do it again. Wow. So for the Icon shirt right now, that's taking us um, right around uh, two and a half hours of time to make that shirt. Mm -hmm. Now, again, none of this is new. These are concepts that were first implemented in production environments after World War II by by Toyota. Um, And they've been refined and uh, customized for each industry. In apparel, we're also not the first. Uh, We're one of about a dozen companies in the United States making Mm -hmm. some kind of apparel using this method. But we're the only ones, not only in cycling, but the only ones in the outdoor recreation industry segment. Yeah, wow. Yeah, very cool. So um, there are obviously a number of advantages to to doing this. And um, beyond just the, the manufacturing side of it, what about transportation costs? I understand that that is a big part of uh, the cost associated with manufacturing overseas. Is that a significant part of the cost? Like if somebody buys a, a shirt off the rack at, you know, say Walmart? So the, the entire industry is really um, beholden now to global shipping. Hmm. And again, an, you know, another example of what we all experienced during the pandemic. Um, you know, the shortages on various items across the spectrum was caused by those uh, what we might call shallow supply chains, mm-hmm. which is really a fancy word for saying there's a slow ship coming <laughs> from some foreign location and it has to get here. Then right. it has to clear customs. Then it has to get on a truck. Then it mm-hmm. has to go and so on and so forth. So um, our rule of thumb is that if it goes by ship, it's going to cost us about 50 cents a shirt. Uh-huh. And if it goes by airplane, it's going to go uh, at about $2 a shirt. Oh, wow. And I often find people are shocked to hear that we use airplanes <laughs> to ship product. Mm-hmm. But in fact, um, this, is, this is one of the many ways that bulk manufacturing is inappropriate for specialty um, industries such as cycling mm-hmm. uh, and certainly for emerging brands. So until you're doing about 10 or $20 million worth of business, when you contact Vietnam or Bangladesh to make your clothes, mm-hmm. um, you are the smallest, smallest customer they have. Right. And when their manufacturing capacity gets squeezed by the big boys, mm-hmm. um, you're going to go to the back of the line. Right. And it is not uncommon to find out that you're about to miss Christmas, even though you ordered your clothes the previous Christmas. Oh, wow. So when you finally, your clothes are finally finished, then you pay for the air freight. Mm-hmm. And Kitspo is not alone in, in constantly and continually paying to air freight finished product from an overseas location to the U.S. in order to meet schedules. Yeah. It's wow. nuts. <laughs> and think about that carbon footprint. We're spending jet fuel on shirts. <laughs> right. It just boggles the mind. Right. These are many of the things I started to learn as I got into uh, Kitspo and instead of um, being on the outside of Kitspo. Yeah. And, uh, and there are multiple disadvantages. It's not just the shipping cost. Um, there is the fact that um, most brands, not all, but most brands, the design work uh, is done in the United States, but, but they can literally send a picture from their phone of a napkin sketch mm-hmm. to the factory in Vietnam 
and they'll be happy to do all the product design in the detailed product design in Vietnam uh -huh. and then FedEx a sample. <laughs> and that has become seductive. But at the end of the day, it means that these brands in America, and I include Kitspo, Kitspo's first four, four or five years, we don't own the pattern. Hmm. So, you know, I came up from a technology background, the idea that I would have a successful product, but I don't own the intellectual property. I can't even get a copy of it because <laughs> it's locked up in the factory in Vietnam to make sure right. I don't switch factories. That's nuts too. Yeah. And then I mentioned a few moments ago that we have to make those orders 12 months in advance. Mm -hmm. In fact, nine months in advance sometimes is possible, especially as you get to become larger and more important to the factories. Mm -hmm. But um, for most brands, it's a 12-month product cycle. Wow. So the way I usually explain that part is I want you to imagine that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to place orders for shirts. And I'm going to order, uh, I have to order the minimum quantity is 300 or more likely 500 of each color. Mm -hmm. So while I'd like to offer five colors, I choose two because that's what I can afford. Right. Um, and I choose red and blue. And I have to send them 30% of the money. I'm sorry, 70% of the money I have to send when I place my order. Wow. So in January of 2020, I would need to send Vietnam. 70% of the money on my 500 red shirts and my 500 blue shirts. Mm -hmm. I will receive those um, in October or November uh, if they come by ship. Mm -hmm. And before they are put on the shift, I have to pay the last 30%. Wow. So the cash flow here is that if we assume I have a 50% margin and I'm buying those shirts, I've paid for 500 shirts, the mm -hmm. list price of 500 shirts, and I'm getting 500 red ones and 500 blue ones. Mm -hmm. I, put those, I put those out on the internet, I put those out in stores, and the rule of thumb in the business is if those don't sell, uh, like hotcakes, <laughs> in the first three to four weeks, then I start marking them down. Wow, Because that's I've quick. got all the money tied up into them. Yeah. And I've got to get the cash back so that I can order some more shirts for next year. Right. And the dilemma is, let's say, for no fault of my own and no way for anyone to predict it, the red shirts sell like hotcakes and I'm out in two weeks. Mm -hmm. The blue shirts languish. Right. So what the apparel industry does, generally speaking, is mark them down after three or four weeks, mm -hmm. mark them down again, and then send them to the landfill. Oh, wow. Because they become so unprofitable that mm -hmm. to try to get rid of them in any other way is just adding more transportation cost. Right. Because I would have to ship them to somebody else. Right. And believe me, I've got to pay for the shipping. So to cut my costs, they go to the landfill. There are some industry experts that estimate as much as 30% of all the finished goods and apparel made worldwide go to landfill. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it is that's, a, a lot, that's a lot of shirts. That's, it's, in, it's incredible. And, of course, you know, it's disgusting in, in this age mm. that some people are going unclothed and uh, all of us are suffering from the environmental damage of, of trashing those clothes. Yeah. So, so there's, a double, there's a double jeopardy. Remember the, the red shirts that sold like hotcakes? Yeah. I'm nine months to reorder those to get more. Right. <laughs> and when they arrive, we spin the roulette wheel again. Now red's out of favor. So I tell everyone that if you're good at that kind of bulk manufacturing in apparel, then you probably are in the wrong job and you should work in Las Vegas. 
<laughs> right. Well, you make a good point at the start of all this saying how like, you know, in the cycling industry, this is already specialty clothing. So you're never going to be the, you know, sort of the biggest customer. You're always going to be kind of at the back of the line. Even if you're the biggest seller of cycling apparel out there, you're still nothing compared to, you know, the company that's making plain cotton t-shirts or, or whatever the case may be. And that's so, right. yeah, it seems like the cycling industry is, is more ripe for this kind of disruption for lack of a better word of, of finding a better way to do things. That's right. So obviously you, you mentioned a number of factors that are going to lead to hopefully to some cost savings in terms of going to lean manufacturing, uh, and, and doing things more in the U S uh, obviously though, labor costs are going to be higher in the U S. So in the end, is the overall cost of goods going to be higher or lower or about the same if companies are able to produce domestically? Well, so far this year, we've been able to focus um, our efforts to improve the efficiency on our modern factory floor. Mm -hmm. And we can make our icon shirts and our technical tees for the same price as if we hired somebody else to make it overseas. Wow. That's, that's surprising. Well, um, I'm proud of the team here, and I don't want to take anything away from the individual and the collective efforts they've put in to making the shirts efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, of course, when we first moved to North Carolina, we were not very efficient. In fact, many of those shirts um, were sold for less than they cost to make. But that wow. was the price of learning how to do this. And today, we make them for the same price as overseas. Wow. And and the key difference is that overseas, you make them in bulk. Mm-hmm. Here, we make them one at a time. Yeah. So as, when I say we learned how to make them for the same price, we learned where to improve bit by bit the process of making them. Mm-hmm. And... We also took the defect rate from about 20% to almost zero. Wow. And the scrap rate is zero because we're making them, quote, just in time. In fact, we can't make them fast enough. So right now, if you were to order a Icon shirt from Kitspo online right Mm -hmm. at this moment, um, you will get your shirt in about four weeks. Okay. And just two months ago, you would have been waiting about 11 weeks. Whoa. So we've cut the, the backlog from 11 weeks down to four weeks. And I think sometime in the next two months, we'll probably get it to almost zero. Okay. And that's because we've been able to hire more people and train them. It takes a while to train them. And then they've been able to become more and more efficient. In other words, to make the, the shirts faster. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that inherent advantage means that we're only making shirts that are either already sold or will sell within a week or so of after we've made them. Hmm. So we never end up with that 30 or 40% that need to go to the landfill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so when you say that, that you're making some that will sell within a week, so you are doing some projections you're not, not literally, you know, coming in in the morning and saying, Oh, Jeff ordered uh, this Jersey in size large. Let's go ahead and make that today. Some of it, you are kind of predicting demand, but, but maybe, just not very far out. Is that the case? That's right. No, we don't really want to have anything more than two weeks worth of supply of any given. And so if we run a promotion and like we had uh, technical tees on the shelf in February and we ran a promotion for spring in March and we quickly went from having positive inventory to negative. Mm-hmm. So right now we're two weeks behind on tech tees. Okay. Um, and 
the that that brings up an interesting topic, which is one of the huge advantages of lean manufacturing isn't that we're going to make it for less money, although we appear to be making it for the same money. Mm-hmm. It's that we can be really nimble. Right. So remember those minimum order quantities; those are per color. Mm-hmm. So we can our minimum order quantity per color is four. <laughs> wow. So if you go onto the website right now, you're going to see a wide variety of colors for tech tees. I think we're having, we're up to about six different kinds of plaids for the icon shirt that ebbs <laughs> wow. and flows between four and eight. And no small company could, could offer that. No company of our size could offer that mm-hmm. if they did bulk manufacturing without taking out. And I'm not exaggerating a five or $6 million loan. Because you'd have to buy 500 of every color. Right. And then there's another whammy, which is there's a fairly standard size range. We've Mm -hmm. been able to watch over time statistically what people buy. So we might order as many as four extra smalls. But we would never order five extra smalls, (laughs) not in a bulk purchase order. Yeah. But people being people, what if someone discovers Kitspo and they're a small frame person and they want one of every color? Yeah. Well, if just four of those people show up on our website during the same time period, one of them isn't isn't going to be able to get an extra small. Yeah. But with this methodology, we can go ahead and take their order and when someone buys something at Kitspo online, about an hour later, that order is in our manufacturing system. Mm. Wow. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to make it the same day, mm-hmm. but we could. And if they happen to be in the same color run, uh, we don't really care about size. If they're in the same color run and the same si- uh, style of tech tea that we're making today, they really could. Their their product could be made today. Yeah. So wow. there's a whole software system that keeps track of all those variables, which run into, well, let, let me see. Last year we did 38,000 orders. <laughs> so wow. the, the numbers are large. But that nimbleness means we can offer all kinds of colors. And we did, a, we did an analysis just a couple of weeks ago and saw – you know, there's a couple colors in the women's technical tees that no one has bought in two months. Mm-hmm. And we thought, you know, maybe we should take that off the out of the store. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yep, there's no cost to having it in the store. We'll leave it there. <laughs> right. If someone wants that particular color, well, we'll make it for it. It might take a week, but we'll make it for them. Yeah. And I imagine you have the, you do have to buy the fabrics, I'm guessing. You have rolls of fabric, uh, certain quantities. So there is still some of that where you have to project the styles and the colors that you think are going to be bestsellers, or are you able to work with your suppliers to, to get from them quickly and in the right quantities that you need? Well, we're, <clears throat> that, that is a great point, And that is a constraint for sure. Um, the order times on fabric with some rare exceptions are about 60 days. Okay. So instead of that, that year long product cycle, if we get it into our heads that customers would like a certain purple, Mm-hmm. we're probably about three months out from being able to offer it. Yeah. And that's a consideration. For instance, we're going to be doing um, a product um, that has merino wool in it, and we're not even going to order the fabric right now because we wouldn't introduce that in the hot of summer. Mm, right. We'll order that fabric so that it lands here just in time to sew and introduce in October. Mm-hmm. So, we have some more flexibility. Um, we're still we're still striving to find U.S. sources for the fabric. It's a mix. Mm-hmm. Um, 
In fact, we don't have a good source of Merino here in the U.S. That's all overseas. Isn't and all Merino adds, from Australia? Isn't that their, their trademark? It, it seems like that. I think Australia would like you to think that. Um, yeah. Uh, well, here in Georgia, Australia. we have Vidalia onions. And if you grow it anywhere other than Vidalia, it's not a Vidalia onion. And you're not allowed to call it Vidalia. Exactly. <laughs> exactly but I guess they yeah. didn't trademark it. So you can, you can have Merino in the U.S. I didn't know that. You can. Yeah. So we're, we're constantly working to source more and more from the U.S. for that triple advantage. We don't mm. want to pay the shipping overseas. We want the jobs to stay in the U.S. And we want to be nimble. We want to be able to get it quickly and work with it quickly. Yeah. Well, speaking of jobs, tell us a little bit about the town of Old Fort, North Carolina, where Kitspo is located. Has it been difficult for you to find manufacturing workers in North Carolina? It's not difficult to find workers. It is a challenge to find people who will be great sewers. Hmm. It's a very particular skill. If you know anyone who sews at home, they can verify that you really need three hands, maybe four, <laughs> to, to hold the work just so as you right. run it through the machine. Yeah, not so, a lot of three-handed people out there, so that, that could be We different. have a four-minute nimble test that, that statistically has been statistically validated by 20,000 people who've taken this test. Hmm. It's an assessment, not a test. Yeah. And it, it assesses your ability to work quickly with your fingers, and it's quite accurate at predicting your success as a sewer. In other words, Kitspo is going to train you. We're going to spend a lot of money training you, somewhere mm -hmm. between $3,000 and $15,000. And um, that test, when I took it, I was in the, the 10 percentile. Hmm, which 10? At the bottom. <laughs> At the bottom. <laughs> so <laughs> I have some skills I like to think about, but it's not sewing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really the challenge is finding, it's not finding workers, it's finding workers that are, are both going to be good at sewing and enjoy sewing. Mm -hmm. We're up to about 60 people right now. Um, we could hire 10 more sewers at any moment. Wow. And as I mentioned, we do, we do the training. Yeah. Um, and that leads to an interesting capitalistic motive, which is we want Old Fort to be an amazing place. Mm -hmm. We don't want to invest the kind of money I just mentioned on team members who then go somewhere else. Right. We want them to love coming into work. So um, if you see any of the photographs of the Kitspo production floor, you'll see that it's a it's a brilliantly polished wood floor mm -hmm. it's open with light and led lighting it is spotlessly clean we clean it every day mm, wow. uh it's a literally a clean well lit place to work and mm -hmm. it's in a, an amazing town uh at lunchtime you can go for a hike uh you can get to the national forest land on your bike um in about six minutes because it's between one and three miles away from the front door. Yeah. And that's Pisgah um, National Forest for those who Pisgah are listening. Yeah. I mean, that's the best mountain biking in, in North Carolina is right there in that well, part of the state. Not everyone agrees with us, but that's just a matter <laughs> of time. They will. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're completely invested in the town and, and it's, it's in our best interests to improve the affordable housing in the town, to improve the streets, to have greenways and playgrounds great places to eat, great places to work. So uh, Kitspo is actively investing in the town. We're the first new significant employment, I'm told, in 30 years of decline. Wow. Um, 
it, it, there is an affordability uh, aspect for Kitspo, but that really wasn't the most important factor. The mm-hmm. most important factor is that it's what I call Goldilocks. So if you're one of our, um, uh, I sometimes think of them as knowledge workers. They spend mm-hmm. most of their time in front of a computer. You can live in one of the most desirable countries in the United States, Asheville, mm-hmm. and have a 21-minute reverse commute uh, down to Old Fort. Mm-hmm. And if you're a production worker and you want a living wage, we're going to pay you more than uh, food service or really any of the traditional entry-level manufacturing jobs. Mm-hmm. And we're tapping a workforce that starts at Old Fort at the foot of the Pisgah Forest and extends eastward for really hours. Yeah. Um, we have a number of our best workers are commuting about 45 minutes from the east into Kitspo. Hmm. And wow. we have our our knowledge workers commuting 20 minutes, maybe 30 west to Asheville. So hmm. it's it's quite the quite the Goldilocks location. Yeah, yeah. And the southeast in general, there's there is a lot of history of that textile uh, industry and that sort of thing. I mean, is that is any was any of that still around when uh, Kitspo located in North Carolina or was that not a, a determining factor at all? It's it's really all of those workers have for the most part aged out. Hmm. So the jobs and the textile industry, um, America bought eighty percent of its clothes from manufacturers in the U.S. in 1975. Okay. And shortly after that, the decline began, really from manufacturers and brands moving offshore. Hmm. And by the end of the 80s, capped by NAFTA, that's when we start seeing numbers that eventually grew to 98% were offshore. Wow. wow. So if you think about that, that's all over by the early 90s. That mm-hmm. was 30 years ago. Yeah. So you would have had to been a very young sewer to still be in the sewing game by the time Kitspo shows up. Right. And we found that to be true in Tennessee, South Carolina, Virginia. Um, all of these locations, we considered 10 of them uh, before we found the, the Goldilocks of Old Fort. Um, mm-hmm. We really did not, we didn't have any conception that we would find trained workers. We knew that we would have to train them. Yeah, interesting. Well, you mentioned uh, sort of the environmental side of choosing lean manufacturing. And over the last year or two, it seems like we've seen a lot of apparel companies uh, focusing on the environment and doing things like reducing packaging or using fabrics that are made from recycled materials. In your opinion, is is that sort of the low-hanging fruit in terms of improving the environmental footprint of the apparel industry? Or are there other things like lean manufacturing that potentially are going to have an even bigger impact? Well, I think, uh, think about it in three or four ways. There's no question that uh, industry leaders like Patagonia, they have embraced um, environmental stewardship at the raw material level. Mm-hmm. So if, if you go to their website, um, you don't have to click very far before you find 30 or 40 initiatives that are focused on environmental stewardship and sustainability at the raw material level. And I salute them for that work because that is expensive and it's a long view. Mm-hmm. Um, we would eventually like to work with hemp. We just don't have the time and money 
to do any experimenting, we have to ship product every day that we know <laughs> will work. Right. So we have a lot of admiration for that. And of course, we're going to take advantage of that as soon as we can. Um, another way is, as you mentioned, the packaging. And um, I'll come back to that in, in just a moment. Uh, we changed our packaging and we used in part a, um, a position paper and study that Patagonia, in fact, uh, released to the public domain in the best interest of helping everybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, they concluded, as have many, including us, that you've got to have um, protection of your finished garment after you've made it. You've got to put it in something mm -hmm. to protect it from dust and handling until it gets to the actual customer. Right. And that whatever you put it in needs to be see-through mm. because you know, you've got to be able to verify what is in the bag without mm -hmm. opening the bag and contaminating it. Right. And consumers want to know what's in the bag. So while one of the best things we could do is put everything in brown paper bags that are recyclable, um, <laughs> that just it's a non-starter from a marketing point of view. Right. So uh, I think there's a bunch of work to do there. Um, we're on a journey there that I'll describe in just a moment. Uh, and so I think that's another piece to the puzzle. Hmm. The third piece to the puzzle is the manufacturing process itself. And there, as much as we admire Patagonia and similar companies for what they're doing with the raw material, they're still manufacturing overseas in environments that are not directly under their control. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't know if those factories are clean or not. We do know how much those factories are paying. And they're paying $2.10 in Vietnam. That's the average wave. Mm -hmm. There yeah. certainly could be outlier situations. But in general, it's an average for a reason. Yeah. So... Um, I think that that is a place that we're making, we've made a huge bet. It's paying off for us, and it does have a substantial impact on the environment in a positive way. But there's a fourth factor to this discussion uh, that we like to emphasize, and it's a little bit unfair because we're selling a very expensive product. Mm -hmm. there, are no, there are no affordable Kitsbo products. They're all <laughs> premium garments. They're all expensive. We hear plenty of feedback from people who don't care for the high prices. Mm -hmm. But we're, of, we're part of a movement where you buy one instead of three of them. Right. And that one garment, that one shirt works when it's hot out, when it's cold out. Or perhaps that one shirt is tastefully made so that you don't have to change clothes when you get back to the car mm -hmm. and you want to go out to lunch. Mm. Or perhaps... That garment is made with such high quality and high quality raw materials that it lasts at least twice as long as any other mountain bike short or shirt you could buy. Mm -hmm. And we get stories of people who have been wearing their mountain bike clothes from Kitspo once or twice a week for five years. Yeah, that's now those look a, a little use. worn. I have an, I have tons of Kitspo garments. I have some that I've worn twice a week for the last three years, and they look new. And the implication of that for the planet is that if I only buy one instead of three, I have just cut my carbon footprint for clothes by two-thirds. Yeah, that's huge. So durability is a huge factor. And, you know, I think our forefathers knew this. I mean, they made clothes that were functional and durable mm -hmm. because... They were in a resource-constrained world. They had to make their clothes at home. 
So they had to make them sturdy. And if you start mm. thinking about some of the brands that are known for being sturdy, well, there's a reason for that. They last. And yeah. you don't have to own that many. Yeah. It's interesting, too. I mean, the other thing that you, you kind of hint at with that is fashion as well, right? I mean, if if something that you're choosing is very, you know, like modern and today kind of it's hot today, but then like in two years, it's not going to be hot. Um, that's another kind of reason for churn for lack two of a better years. Word. Yeah. So there's a whole category called fast fashion, which is two months. <laughs> Wow. Right. So it's clearly I'm it not one that. of those fashion people. So, yeah, Well, we've already months. discussed wow. my my lack of credentials to talk about what <laughs> what what is stylish and not. But as as it was explained to me is style is a kind of timeless attractiveness and has a lot to do with the right shape for the body that's wearing it. Mm-hmm. And fashion is about a fad. Okay. So we like to say that we make stylish or st- uh, clothes with timeless style mm-hmm. as opposed to fashion, let alone right. fast fashion. Yeah. A lot of that waste in the apparel industry, it's coming from fast fashion. Mm-hmm. Do you feel pressure, though, to like every season have like a new color or a new style or, or that sort of thing? Or are you able to say, no, this is, you know, this color and this cut and everything is going to be in the line for at least, you know, the next year or two years? I think it's a combination. We certainly, um, we certainly introduce new colors and new styles all of the time. And then we watch the sales and decide, um, decide which ones to keep making and not. And just as the example I gave earlier, where we did not discontinue the color for the women's tech tees because there's really no cost to offering it for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we are in that special situation, but I will say that we don't make anything that isn't durable. And if we find any kind of durability or reliability problem, it Mm -hmm. gets our full attention and we fix it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the advantages of manufacturing in the U S is that, like you said, you're able to shorten those lead times and potentially you can make changes to the product based on feedback from your customers. What are some of the things you've learned from customers or been able to improve about products kind of through this process? The, um, it's a great question. It is, I think, um, one of the most important things a brand can do is balance on the one hand that consistency of what the brand stands for, mm-hmm. what it represents, what its values are. And on the other hand, respond to customer feedback. Mm-hmm. So a good example of that is, is that Icon Pendleton wool shirt that we introduced six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a board member, I got one of the first ones, and I thought it was absolutely beautiful. They sent me the XX, or I guess at that time it was an XL. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't wear it then, and I can't wear it today. <laughs> <laughs> it was cut for an athletic slim build. Mm -hmm. So even if the sizing was right, the fit would have been uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because I've got broader shoulders and a broader chest. Um, I'm told I'm in the Clydesdale class of cyclists. (laughs) So um, about three years ago, we introduced the relaxed athletic fit of that shirt. Mm -hmm. And as marketers here at Kitspo, we thought, oh goody, we're going to get all those big men. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of big men. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of the men who have money are big. Right. This is going to be great. <laughs> and what we learned from customer feedback, both measured by their behavior buying and their returns and their comments back to us, mm-hmm. is that there were many slim men that wanted a garment that looked more like a jacket. Hmm. And so we ended up selling about half of the relaxed athletic fit cut of that icon shirt mm-hmm. to men that certainly fit into, and in many cases already owned the so-called signature fit, mm-hmm. but they wanted a more of a layered look. that was a little more loose. Hmm. Um, now we don't know enough to know that that's what they're wearing to the pub and they're wearing the slim fit on the bike. We don't have that level of precision, but, mm-hmm. uh, we do know that, um, we're not always right. And we had a marketing theory and it was only half right. Yeah. The other half of the product was purchased by people who wanted a different feel and look. Yeah. Um, we know that women have been buying the signature fit with that straight cut um, because that's their preference hmm. um, for their body. While other women want the, the women's cut, which we introduced two years ago, uh, which is much more curvy. Hmm. So I can foresee a time in the future where we don't even identify these fits by gender. Hmm. It's really by shape because right. all three you know, have a different role, uh, for a different body type. And we would not have been able to do that with mass, with mass manufacturing. That first bet would have been in tens of thousands of dollars. Right. So recently we've started, um, to expand the relaxed athletic fit in the tech tees with offering, uh, first extended sizes. So now we go down to extra, extra small, and we go up to XXXXL. Wow. And um, we're not the only brand that's doing that, but we're the smallest brand that's doing that. And that's <laughs> absolutely because of that lean manufacturing capability. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And, and if that sort of resized uh, shirt that you're talking about, uh, if it didn't work, you know, you have this theory, well, you know, seems like some people it's not fitting right for them or, you know, they're just not a big fan of the fit. You can try that. And if it doesn't work out, you haven't, like you said, you haven't lost tens of thousands of dollars. You've, you've just lost a little bit and you can take it out of the line. If and it and actually, work. I don't think we've lost anything at all because we sold it. And yeah. unless it comes back as a return, we don't lose any money. We just yeah. move on and use the fabric for something else. Um, I, I want to point out that because we're kind of obsessive about fit, the fit of the technical tees for the men's line has changed four times in the last five years. Wow. So today it's literally the fourth generation fit. Hmm. The colors haven't changed that much. The overall look of the silhouette from a distance hasn't changed at all. Hmm. Um, the technical efficiency of those shirts hasn't changed. We've just focused on that fit. And we've been doing this kind of thing since the beginning. The yeah. women's technical tees, they're in their at least second generation. So I'm quite sure that as we ship these larger styles, we'll learn that the fit of the technical tees for the very large people will be need to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to embrace that because we can make that change here in Old Fort. We don't have to We don't have to work with uh, a product designer in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't have to make 300 or 500 of them. We can make three. Um, We can launch a product with three because that's what it takes to make sure we have the right sizes Mm -hmm. and to take the photos for the website and send them to ambassadors that are testing our product. Mm, Wow. 
That's awesome. Well, uh, you touched on this as well, but I read in a recent press release uh, that items that you're able to manufacture in-house are, and I quote, made with even greater care and precision to higher standards than ever before. So I'm curious to know sort of why is that the case? Is it is it a case of uh, the workers overseas, they, they aren't able to keep higher standards or is it a quality control and sort of oversight thing or, or what, what lets you have better quality control uh, when you're manufacturing in-house? So there's a couple aspects to, to that situation. One is um, overseas, we don't know what the situation is with scrap, mm-hmm. um, except that we get a charge for it and it's a significant charge. So that means they don't tell us the details, um, but we know like we're talking thousands of dollars. So we know that there are unsuccessful items made overseas that are then sent to a landfill or, or something. Yeah. So Um, when you say scrap, you, you mean it's a garment that they, they made it and it didn't work for whatever reason. They had to throw it out. This is not scrap, meaning they cut the fabric and there's like scrap left over. Right. I'm talking about, I'm talking about gar- garments that have to be scrapped. Okay. Um, the, uh, the scenario about quality is it depends to some degree, which country and of course, which specific manufacturer, hmm. uh, we had some shirts made overseas, um, three years ago. And it was, in fact, it was our last, uh, it was our last finished garments made overseas mm-hmm. and, um, the cost went up and up and up because of the errors. Hmm. So um, we know that there was about a 20% give or take failure rate in the finished goods. Wow. And you're responsible is that for that as Every a brand? contract. I mean, if, if yes. you, you agree to a price up front, but then later they can come back and say, oh, this is, this was harder to make than we thought we need more money. That's exactly what happened here. In fact, they wouldn't have taken the order if they couldn't be flexible about the price because they said that you've got a very challenging design. Mm. And it was, it was essentially the, um, uh, for lack of a better term, the summer version of the icon shirt. Mm. Okay. And the ones we got back that passed inspection are fabulous. I have a couple myself. Um, uh, and we will be making that shirt again here in the U S but overseas to get the quality level, uh, we basically had to sell those shirts in the U.S. for what we paid for them in Hong Kong. Wow. And we, uh, an even stronger example is the Icon shirts used to be made um, in California, and we've used three different manufacturers. In all three cases, we've had about a 20% uh, failure rate. Mm-hmm. So we would inspect the shirts when they arrive, and we'd either have to repair them or we'd have to reject them. Wow. Today, it is rare that we have a shirt that does not pass inspection with flying colors. And if you and I sat down together in five minutes, I could show you the difference between uh, a contract icon shirt and mm-hmm. our current icon shirts. Hmm. So we have we have never received um, complaints about the quality of the icon shirt from mm-hmm. three or four years ago. But I can show you today that when you get an icon shirt made in North Carolina, it is at the level of a Brooks Brothers dress shirt, but it's rugged enough for you to wear it on your mountain bike every day. Hmm. Wow. I mean, it is a work of art. I mean, it is, and, it is amazing. Hmm. 
And what do you attribute that to, though? I mean, is it that you you have better equipment, you know, because you're able to purchase it and kind of make sure it's maintained properly? Or is it quality of your workers, uh, your ability to train them? What, what is it that lets you do that in-house better than, than you were able to when you kind of outsourced it? Well, there's there's two parts to that question. And one is really philosophical, which is the lean method is is about increasing efficiency, but it's also about constant improvement. Mm-hmm. And so when the manufacturing is occurring right here in our building and we're looking at the output and we scratch our head and say, you know, that pocket seam would look even better if this if the actual sewn seam was closer to the edge. Mm-hmm. I wonder how we could do that. Hmm. That is that is a classic lean um, question. Mm-hmm. And asking how can we do that in less time, now we have a double benefit. We've increased the quality and we've decreased our cost. Yeah. So we've got an entire team here, and that's the second part of the question, which is the team here really cares. Mm-hmm. So we're creating, in many ways, a new industry, lean apparel. Yeah. There's nothing happening on our production floor or in our design studio that is truly unique to cycling or even outdoor recreation. Mm-hmm. These yeah. techniques could work with anything as long as you could charge a premium price for the finished item. So the Icon shirt right now is um, uh, 235 and the Merino version is 250 So if there's a market for $235 wool shirts, then we can make them for any activity. Mm, yeah. And I think that that passion about changing an industry is part of every worker here. They're not, they're not just a, a part of a machine making a shirt. Mm-hmm. They're making incredibly high quality premium shirts that they're proud to be associated with. And if yeah. they can figure out how to do it at a lower cost and a higher level of quality, they're going to. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty different than someone making $2 and 10 cents an hour in Vietnam working in a large factory environment, often with the dormitory connected to the factory. Yeah. So I do think there's a philosophical element, and then there's an element of the people who work here. I mean, one of the reasons for our Goldilocks location is it's part of Appalachia. And Appalachia is a region of the country that has seen incredible hardships Mm -hmm. over the decades. Yet the people who are still here, in most cases, were born here. And their parents were born here, and their parents were born here. Mm-hmm. And that resilience is a source of pride, and it's a work ethic, mm-hmm. and it's also, as far as I'm concerned, a good investment because they're not likely to move to another location. I think most of the people who work here want to make great product and then make it even better next week. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and clearly the incentives are much more aligned when you're making your own clothing versus if you just have a contract and there's a fixed price and, you know, this is what it's going to cost and we're just going to, we're going to pump it out versus, like you said, we're going to try to make it as, as good as we can and we're going to keep improving it uh, just because we've got our names on the line. You know, nobody knows who, who manufactured the shirt for, you know, 
some other brand. Uh, none of us know what the factory is or, or who that sort of company is. It's, it's really, at the end of the day, it's the name that's on the shirt that's uh, associated with the quality. Well, that's not just figuratively speaking. Um, when you get any item that has been sewn in North Carolina in the bag, you will find a card with the initials of each person who worked on your shirt. Mm, cool. So what does the future of cycling apparel look like for Kitsbo? Well, I think that, um, I think that we've already seen a huge shift. Um, when I'm out on my bike and I see other cyclists, only about one in three are wearing a traditional bike jersey as we've come to associate with road cyclists mm -hmm. and competitors. Right. Um, there's definitely a move that's been underway for a couple of years now towards having a bag somewhere on the bike to hold your items and your phone mm -hmm. and to wear a regular shirt without the pockets in the back. Yeah. Um, there's a number of people who, who don't understand um, bicycle races, <laughs> don't consider themselves uh, a competitor. Mm -hmm. They may not even consider themselves an athlete and they don't want to dress in a traditional Lycra fit, nor do they want to advertise logos on their body. Mm -hmm. They're looking for functional style. And that's a pretty good fit for Kitspo. So if you look in our store, you will see that there are plenty of highly cycling-specific items, including um, bib shorts and bib knickers for men, mm -hmm. um, cycling shorts with chamois pads for women and you'll see a scattering of jerseys but just about everything else is multi-purpose hmm. and part of that is um, what the public would like to ride in part of that is what we would like to ride in mm -hmm. um, many of us at kitspo ride some of us commute um, we're not wearing we're not wearing jerseys and haven't for years and hmm. i think that some of these some of the values of mountain biking in particular are perfect for a sustainable, thoughtful, active lifestyle. And what I mean by that is if you, if you talk to any roadie, um, <laughs> you ask them what did they do with their clothes last time they had a crash on the road, they threw uh -huh. them away because they're going to be cheese grated and road rash. Mm -hmm. I mean, any slightest contact with the pavement and those clothes are not wearable, yeah. at least not in public. Um, and if you ask your mountain biker what happened last time they crashed in the woods, they're going to say, what do you mean? <laughs> because they're doing that at a slower speed. There's no road rash. Mm -hmm. And they're going to pick up, dust themselves off, and keep on riding. Mm -hmm. So the Kitspo clothes from the very first days were designed to be super durable so they did not tear on bushes or on bark or on mm -hmm. the occasional rock during a, a biff in the woods. Mm -hmm. So that... That's why our clothes are durable. And that's one of the reasons why they're expensive. We're using really expensive ballistic cloth in, in the points of likely contact. Hmm. But that also means this stuff's going to last for a long time. Right. So I think what you're going to see is more and more multi-sport use of so-called cycling apparel. And it's going to look a lot less like cycling apparel and a lot more like life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we've definitely been seeing that trend in cycling, and obviously Kitsbo has been a big part of that. 
Are, are the materials changing much from year to year? Are we seeing more technical fabrics? Do you think that that there's an opportunity there, or or are the materials that we have today pretty good? It's just a matter of of how we use them. Oh, I think I think the materials are going to keep changing. I think they're going to change throughout our lifetime and the next lifetime and the next. Um, the technical fabrics that you mentioned, uh, I am trying to think of a technical fabric we use that did not start in a military environment, huh. and and I can't think of one. They all <laughs> were originally developed for military applications. Wow. And. Um, that is obviously an area that's going to continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was astonished the first time I rode in hot conditions in what we call our superflow technical tee mm-hmm. because Xander, the founder, had told me, it's like an air conditioner. I'm like, God, <laughs> you're not even in marketing and you sound like it. And I rode in it and I'm going up a hill and I didn't really notice it and I'm sweating profusely and I go down the descent. And mind you, it's 80 degrees uh, at, and, and here in North Carolina, this was about six years ago, five years ago. And I start down the descent and I actually got cold. <laughs> wow. And it's a product that was developed for the military and it wicks in a specific way, partly because of the material and partly because of the weave. And it acts essentially as a swamp cooler. And, and f- for your listeners who don't know what a swamp cooler is, that preceded the air conditioner. Mm-hmm. You put it on top of a structure and you basically water the structure like with a sprinkler and mm-hmm. then you run a fan across it. And that evaporation gives the sensation of cooling. Hmm. And that's what I'm doing when I'm descending in my superflow. The yeah. moisture is all to the surface. By the way, it looks terrible, right? It looks like I have giant <laughs> sweat stains. Right. This is not for fashion. This is for function. Mm-hmm. But as I go downhill in an 80 degree warm wind, it's cooling me so much so that I feel cold. Yeah. Now it doesn't last to get to the bottom and you know, it's time to climb again. Now I'm overheated. (laughs) But that air conditioning feeling is a direct result of a technical fabric. Now, the flip side of that is that technical fabric is by definition made from petroleum products. Mm -hmm. So long-term that's not sustainable. So that's what I mentioned when I mentioned previously hemp and other natural fibers. Mm -hmm. Um, Whatever we can do to increase our ability to use products that are grown nearby, woven nearby, do not use petroleum products or use a minimal amount of petroleum products. Mm -hmm. Those are all changes that, that we will embrace going forward. And I think we'll always be in that mode. I think that's, that's a that's a journey that doesn't have a firm destination. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a great time. It seems to be a mountain biker to have all of these things available to us, and to think that things will get even better is pretty awesome to think about. Oh gosh, I was on a full squish mountain bike uh, three years ago for the first time. Uh, I had, had only had hard backs before that, uh, hard tails, mm-hmm. and. On, on my first ride, I thought I was going to crash at least 10 times right. and I just rolled through it. I was just like, God, this makes me look good. I mean, <laughs> it, it, the technology improvements, assuming you have the checkbook uh, to embrace them, uh, they, they're changing the sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, right. We can, we can feel good on the bike and we can look good in our Kitspo apparel. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. I learned a ton about lean manufacturing and, and particularly about how Kitspo is using that uh, to create cycling apparel. So thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Well, thank you. And I would say that, that this is a journey. We're not declaring victory. <laughs> and as we learn more, both good and bad, and as we evolve, we're trying to communicate that with our, with our community and interested parties. And so the way to do that is to sign up on the email list. And I guarantee you, Kitspo will send you something almost every day. And <laughs> often it will be interesting. Yes. Awesome. Well, and there's also more information as well at kitsbow.com. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.